0: Let's take our Bibles. I want you to meet me in Romans chapter 1. We don't have a slide for this, and that's okay. Uh, Because most of the study that we're going to do tonight uh, is just in the New Testament. We are continuing through on our study on, you know, a biblical response to homosexuality. And I just want to kind of talk about this before we start. We had, you know, we had... uh, Some things happened in the earlier part of the the service today that kind of just were, I was, you know, worried about Kaylee and making sure that she was good. She's good, by the way. Everything is fine. And I appreciate everybody who ran to assist her in in a timely manner. That's good. Uh, But there are some things that I wanted to say in the beginning of the message that just escaped my mind because, you know, we were concerned about her. But a majority of what I wanted to say is just to make sure that people understand where this is coming from. Um... It's really sad that in our culture today you can't speak on what the Word of God already clearly says. We were just singing that song, Standing on the Promises. Uh, One of the greatest promises that the Word of God gives us is that our sins are fully paid if we put our trust in Jesus Christ. The reason why topics like this have become a hot button issue is because there hasn't been any clear Bible teaching on it for the sake of offending people. There's a whole movement. Uh, The seeker-sensitive movement is what it's called, where churches try to be sensitive to the people who are seeking. And they make statements like, because the seeker is sensitive, uh, or or we want to be sensitive to the person who's seeking, we're not going to talk on sin. We're not going to talk about blood. We're not going to talk about things that are controversial inside of the culture. This is a really dangerous decision to make because you start to eliminate large portions of scripture. If I were to walk up to somebody off the street and I were to say the phrase, believe on Jesus Christ as your savior, there's a strong likelihood that they don't even understand what they're being saved from. So I, we have to talk about sin because sin is what separates us from God. And if we just decide as a church that, well, we're not going to talk on things that will make people feel uncomfortable, we're not going to be be able to even share the gospel. And to a further extent, we're going to change what God's word says and we're going to silence him on what he says on particular issues. I don't want to be a part of that. But I also recognize, too, that you don't want to become so alienated from the world that no one will come and listen to you. That last part, I think, is where a lot of people, especially conservative churches that do preach on sin strongly, they're beginning to alienate themselves because they do not speak enough about grace. They kind of only speak to people who are in the party, so to speak. It's like going to the Republican prayer breakfast and speaking on all democratic talking points. (laughs) You would probably not be well received because you don't know your audience. You would want to speak on things that people would agree with or things that people would understand because they're already in that viewpoint. Well, when we talk about the Bible, we're supposed to reach the whole world. So we need to be able to speak to people who already believe and for those who have yet to believe. We have to be able to serve all those different meals on the table. And if we only start talking to believers, then we leave the lost person out. And whatever kind of attitude is given from the pulpit, especially in a, in a thriving church, is most likely going to be carried out on its people. It's a sad reality, but a lot of people, because they don't read their Bibles for themselves, they rely on the pastor and their Sunday school teachers and all these other teachers in their lives, they inform their talking points. I've, I've seen this happen. Uh, it's a sad reality of debate, but people oftentimes just memorize talking points instead of actually researching the material. That's what I like to do. I like to research the material. And I scoured a lot of information on the internet, and a lot of it is well written, but it's just not biblically sound. And so I came across these two journal entries, uh, about four pages each, with great citations and a lot of good information. And I thought, I think this is the best way to share what people are saying, especially from the pro homosexual theological movement, and how they explain away certain passages in Scripture. Now, the New Testament is much harder to defend for the pro-homosexual theological movement, because the Bible very clearly condemns it as wrong. It's easier for those who are the uh, of the homosexual theological movement to talk about the Old Testament, because they can kind of get away with the word play, like we talked about this morning with the word No. But when you get into the study of the words that are used, there, there are three specific passages that we're going to look at, one in Romans, one in 1 Corinthians, one in 1 Timothy. There, and each use of the word to describe homosexual behavior describes just that. As a matter of fact, there's one Greek word, and I, I can't pronounce it, but there's one Greek word where it only means that. It's used about twice in Scripture, and even in the Greek society, it was very rarely used because it really meant one thing. There's a, we, we need to take a look at a couple of things culturally before we get into the scripture, but one of the main claims against the passage we're going to read tonight in Romans chapter 1 is that the discussions here are not really talking about homosexuality as an act. It's talking about homosexuality as a picture of the depravity that came at the fall. Right, so follow with me here for a moment. This is, the, this is the line of thinking. God created everything good, and then man fell, and it reversed what God said was good. And all of a sudden, instead of truth and honesty, you had lies and deception, okay? Instead of life and the prolonging of life, you have murder and early death. Uh, instead of spiritual union with God under innocence, now you have spiritual separation from God under sin, So Romans 1, before we get to the big passages that clearly condemn homosexual behavior, there's already a roadmap that's laid out for Paul is making a logical argument here. He's saying people reject God and they worship the creation. They reject the creator, but they worship the creation. I mean, if you kind of look just in like our sports culture today, a lot of the sports teams are represented by animals, you know, and there's you know, the Detroit lions, lions are fierce and, and all these different things. Uh, the, I don't know about the Baltimore Orioles, those are just birds. But you know, the idea is they're strong, they're fast, it's whatever. Well, people take that to a much further extreme and they actually worship animals. Uh, I, I, I saw somebody just today with uh, crystals on their uh, fingers and a crystal around her neck and all these different things. And people worship the creation, the things that God have created And they call the Creator non-existent. So there's a path that's going through here when we look at the Scripture. And then there's a very clear, I believe, and the Scripture also supports this, there's a very clear communication here that homosexual behavior is a part of that deviation from God's original plan. But the uh, pro-homosexual theological movement, they say, no, that actually is just a picture of the fall. Well, even if it's an illustration, why do they choose that if there's nothing wrong with the act of homosexual behavior? Why would that be a symbol of falling away from God's intended plan? Because it is. (laughs) It's exactly what it is. God has shown what proper sex should be, and it should be between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. So any kind of description of the fall that includes homosexuality is already working off the knowledge that it's wrong. But they're not challenged on that. And this is the hardest passage for them to defend because it just nails it right to the wall. I want you to take a look now as we get into it. Start there in verse 19, excuse me, verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And you need to mark this here, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So what they say is true is actually unrighteous. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Now this does not just mean that the actual creation of, you know, like how our bodies work, how nature works and all that. That's not the only way that God has revealed himself to us. We all understand that you have to learn how to be an atheist. You don't just wake up one day and have to be taught that there's a God. Morality is instinctual within all of us. I'm pretty sure if you think hard enough, you can remember to the the first few times that you sinned, that you made a knowing, you you knowingly made a decision to disobey. There was a choice that you had to make, and you knew there's a right choice here and there's a wrong choice here, and I'm going to choose the wrong choice. These are proofs of God's existence. He is moral, He is just, He has morality. That would not be something that you would see in the animal kingdom. If a lion is hunting prey and it would be a wrong thing to do, he doesn't even know the difference between right and wrong. This is why it's kind of crazy when you see people that try to get close with those wild animals, you know what I'm talking about? And they, they, they try to act like, oh, they're just like us and, and everything is the same. Then there was a guy who was doing that with uh, bears. I'm talking like big old bears. And just he was doing it for three years. And then one day, that bear literally took his face off and he died. Did that bear just decide, uh, did he wake up and choose violence that day? Did he just say, all right, you know, I've been nice to this guy, I'm not going to be nice anymore. I, the bear, am going to do evil. The bear does not make that connection. He doesn't have any consciousness there. You and I do have that connection. I think we understand it best as a young person. We we understand that you are a I thing. I am and I think and I have choices to make. I have feelings and emotions. There are decisions that I can make that bring about certain consequences. You didn't evolve into that. That is a blueprint of God's design. We are made in His image. God has those choices and He can only make good choices. He, as a matter of fact, there are things that God cannot do. He cannot lie. And, and that is a part of His perfect and holy and righteous nature as to who He is. We're made in that same image, not that we cannot lie, but we have awareness. And what is said here is that it's already in them, in man, the truth is in man, that he, has a, he is responsible to somebody outside of himself. He has the ability to choose between good and evil. He chooses to hold the truth in unrighteousness, as it said at the end of verse 18. And the wrath of God is revealed against that. So now in verse 20, you have a very famous passage. It's a very well-known in the apologetic sphere. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. So now nature comes into the discussion. Because, of course, you're going to have people that say, well, what if you live in a culture where there is no teaching of God? And I've studied cultures like that. When I was in college, in a missions class, I believe we were seniors, and we went up to... Oh, it's escaping my, uh, my brain at the moment. New tribes, Ethnos 360. We went up to Waiyumi, that's the name, and at Waiyumi, we learned about a specific people group that had no written language, and I mean they had no spoken language either. They communicated in kind of like charades, so to speak. I mean, they would speak, but there was no actual connotation, like no words, like it wasn't even a discernible language. But they still worshipped some type of deity in their mind to bring rain on the crops, they still had an idea without any influence. From, there, there were no settlers thousands of years ago that taught them these things, and then they forgot about them but retained the principles. They still understood the concept of revenge. They, you don't understand the concept of revenge if you don't understand the concept of something good. What is there to revenge if you don't even know what good is? It's just action and reaction. But it was amazing, this, this, this culture where they were, if somebody from a neighboring tribe killed another tribesman, they would ground up the bones of the murdered tribesman, put it in a banana mash type soup thing, drink that mixture, go over and kill another tribesman. You don't do that if there's not some understanding that it, there, was, there was an offense committed against you. No one had to teach them these things. It's in us. We know the difference between right and right and wrong being clearly think, uh, seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and godhead so that they are without excuse just as a side note this is, has nothing to do with what we're talking about but since we're here there will not be anybody that will stand before god at the great white throne judgment and have an excuse this verse says it now when i was a kid and i specifically remember asking peter amato this question I said, what about the people that have never heard, right? And in my mind, I had some person on an island far, far away that was born, lived, and died without ever hearing the name Jesus Christ or that there was a God or anything like that. And I told myself, God would not be just and fair if that person went to hell. That's what I would say. Because they never had a chance. And Peter as he often did, he's a very, very smart man, and he just said very plainly, he said, I, he said I, I, I find it remarkable that you are concerned with the man on an island, but not with your neighbor. Now, as a teenager, you're like, all right, thanks. But the truth of the statement is, I was focused on something, yes, that was a good question, but if that person mattered so much that it was willing to, I was willing to use it to overthrow my faith, why wouldn't I reach somebody that I do know, that does have the opportunity to hear the, to hear the gospel from my mouth? And, you know, I didn't think of it that way until much later, but he showed me this verse, and it makes sense. There, no one will be without excuse. There will not be somebody who stands at the great white throne judgment with the phrase, you never told me. I didn't know. I believe that God is just and fair, and so if a person ends up going to hell, it is because they are properly condemned by God. It's my job to make sure that whoever I come in contact with, I have an opportunity, if I have an opportunity, I give them the gospel. That's my responsibility. And I don't know if that'll be used against people in the, the, the end times, or uh, at the great white throne judgment, that well, I sent so-and-so and you rejected. What, what do you say about that? I don't know if that's how that's going to happen. But I do know that we have a responsibility to give the gospel. And so instead of trying to catch God, instead of trying to find some loophole in which we can accuse him, we should just obey him. This is, this is another form of rebellion. It's another form of pride. Kids do this all the time. They try to find some way to get out of what they've been told to do. It usually sounds like this. I'll use James as an example. James, did you clean your room? No, but I... It's those last two words. No is the truth of it. He chose not to, but I is how he's trying to justify himself. You know? But I I had something else to do. Well, I told you to do this. Does that remove any responsibility from him? No, if he was told to do something, he should have gone and done it, but he didn't. And so just make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to do where you are planted so that people can be brought to the knowledge of the truth. But there will not be anybody who will stand before God without excuse or uh, um, with an excuse. And I'll tell you this too. If that is something that really bothers you, the unreached person, you might be be, uh, being called by the Lord to be a missionary. Because we do need people that go. That group that I told you about uh, at Wyoming, the group that we studied, it's a real people group. It took 10 years to get them the gospel. You couldn't go into the jungle, meet their group, and say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. They have no idea what you just said. It would be hard to say that they even understood you spoke words. The concept of words is foreign. So what do you do? You ingrain yourself into the culture. You live like they do. You build a language. Can you imagine building a language? The language we have right now is hard enough, you know? And then you get them to learn that language, use it, teach it. Then you start to get a written language with vowels and consonants and, and turns of phrase and all that. And then you get to a point where you can start teaching from creation to Christ. Then people get saved. Can you imagine how much work that is? Is it worth it? Absolutely. If it brings people to Christ, absolutely. And if that's a question that you have, you know, what about those people? Maybe you could be called in that way. But now let's take a look, uh, continuing here. Because, verse 21, that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. So they knew him, not in a point that they trusted in Christ, but they knew of him, they were aware. They glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Many Greek teachers, scholars, and philosophers were perceived as extremely wise in their cultures. But they all rejected Jesus Christ. They worshipped a pantheon of gods. They knew of an existence of God They said the true God is not God, and they went to their imaginations. Zeus, all these different things, Greek mythology. They became fools. They were the ones that rejected. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 22, now 23. And here's what I want you to see here. Changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. Now, this is very important. The writer Paul here he's he's setting up an illustration. He says they changed the incorruptible God into an image of something that's corruptible. Now I know the text says something different, but that's the play that is coming in here. That's the understanding. Change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. I want you to think <clears throat> excuse me. <coughs> I want you to think of modern day or excuse me. Bible time idols, okay, like the calf um, when Moses went to Mount Sinai, the golden calf. It's in the image of something that God had created, a calf. Many different, you know, idols back in that time, you know, the body of this, the wings of that, whatever it may be. But they created something that was in the image of God's creation. There wasn't something brand new that they thought of. And they worshiped it as if it was God. It is an image. It is the lesser quality of the original. And it's marred. Look at what it says. And to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now, this goes right into, an, it, there is no break here. The argument has already been made. The discussion is man has turned from what God has said is right. They have called him essentially a liar, that he is not a truth teller. And they have made an image which is uh, corruptible. Then they move into this very clearly here. You can't change this around. The description of homosexual behavior in verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Who changed... There's that word again. So I, I would just... If you're taking notes in your Bible... I would, look at, I would circle the, the two times that changed is used here. It's used first in verse 23 and again at the beginning of verse 25. The first time that it's used, it's talking about change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. And now it's saying again, talking about what was the claim that was made. Look at the last part of verse 24 to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. So, we're talking about mankind dishonoring their own bodies between themselves. He's narrowing it down here who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, the creature here does not mean, you know, animals. The creature here would mean humans. That's the context. The context is set in the beginning of verse 24. Gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. And it specifically is narrowed down to their bodies and how they use their bodies to dishonor. They changed the truth of God. So this truth is set and then it's explained in 26. For this cause, that they dishonored their own bodies, they've changed the truth of God into a lie. God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. So remember I said in the outset, the argument here is that, well, this is a description of the fall. This is not a literal condemnation on homosexual behavior. Is that what the text is saying? The text is very clearly set a subject it set an action and it set a sentence against it, and likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their own lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meet. They did not change from the truth that they were brought. Against, or excuse me, that was brought to them. And we see that back in what was said in verse 19. They knew God. They left him. Excuse me, verse 21. They knew him, glorified him not as God, worshiped the creature. Now specifically, we're getting into men dishonoring themselves, mankind. And it's not just talking about men with men. It's talking about even women moved away from their natural use. And it says very clearly, there are three descriptions <clears throat> 26 vile affections Uh, 27 leaving the natural use and working that which is unseemly receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was met and even as they did not like to retain god in their knowledge god gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient now you need to understand what this means There is a principle in Scripture called judicial hardening. And it is where God hardens the heart of man. Now, many people think that God does that judicial hardening against their will. But God does that in response to their continual sin. Now, we're talking about unbelievers here. Pharaoh is the first example. Pharaoh was pressed time and time again by Moses. Let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. He continually said no, and there was a serious plague. He's presented again. He says no, serious plague. Romans 9 says that the more that Pharaoh decided no, the more God hardened his heart. So the question would be. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Was it because God chose him as a vessel unto wrath against his will? No, it's because God is responding to his unwillingness to allow Moses' people to go. So the same thing happens here, and this is why this is a serious thing. And folks, this is why, if I can just be plain here, this is why we're seeing so much movement on this issue. It's no longer just you know, the homosexual agenda used to be, well, we just want to have the right to marry. It's not that anymore. Now they want the right to teach children. Now children should be participating in it. I want to read this to you, and this is, this is a little, uh, man, what's, what's the word to use? Crazy. When you think of, you know, uh, Grecian culture, that this was normal and practiced, what I'm about to read to you here. Uh, I'm reading from the article that we have here uh, that we're building off of. According to the context, it can have the idea of being weak or loose morally and being effeminate. This may relate to the Greek uh, practice of perderastia, which means the lover of boys. And this is a very specific relationship that happened, get this, between a teacher and a student. It was not outside the realm of uh, uncommon behavior. This, this was common, that teachers would prey upon young boys, male teachers would take in young boys as pupils and then enter into a sexual relationship with them. There was, there was a, uh, a word for it. It was not uncommon for a strong sexual union to result between a young man and an elder teacher who was his model, guide, and initiator. In classical Greek, this word was used to refer to boys and men who allowed themselves to be used homosexually. It was applied to a man taking the female or passive role in homosexuality. And there are at least four counts here about this kind of behavior modern in Paul's time. So Paul is not talking from some misunderstanding of homosexuality. It was present in his culture. He was aware of it. And I think it's, well, it's not crazy. It's just the natural progress of allowing homosexuality in a culture it's going to leak into every facet of it. And you see it now. Now it's like we should have the right. It's not someone who's a pedophile. It's someone who is, they're, they're attracted, minor attracted persons is the term that uh, was recently used in Congress to describe these people. They're not pedophiles. They're just attracted to minors. We used to call that a pedophile. But now because we're starting to approve this kind of behavior man with man, women with women, and also the whole trans issue. Now what's to stop anybody going after kids? This is not a new thing, by the way. This is not a brand new thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. This behavior. And it's important that we understand the root of it is that it is an image of something that is corruptible. And there is a serious consequence, verse 28, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. There is a point where a person can sear themselves beyond any kind of influence from the Holy Spirit. This is one of those times. I want you to hold your spot here, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. There's a phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 18. This was on page 1217. It says, flee fornication. And I want you to think of Joseph when you think of flee. Okay, Joseph did not look at Potiphar's wife and say, Look, you beautiful lady, I, I appreciate it, I'm flattered. But this is not right he ran away he did not apologize or anything like that he got out of the way of this sin that was presented to him that's how we should look at flea fornication pornea is what that says and then there's a there's a revelation of knowledge here specifically about fornication which is sex outside of marriage and i would say hetero or homo this is what it says Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. There is something special and unique about sex that if you do it improperly, it brings damage to yourself. Now, we could say, you know, drinking does the same thing, and the use of drugs does the same thing, and gossip and backbiting does the same thing. But the Bible makes a specific distinction here. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What that means is our bodies are created in the image of God. When we use it in a way that mars that image, we're, we, we, are, we are shaming ourselves. And that's for all fornication. But very specifically, homosexual behavior, God can... This is, this is hard to think of, but I want you to make sure you understand me plainly. God can give that person up to that desire. The likelihood that they will trust on Jesus Christ diminishes drastically. And you see that in the culture today. It is so rare that you see somebody who is practicing homosexuality in a bold and boisterous way that they ever change their mind. Sadly, most people, at least 45% of people that undergo gender reversing or sex changes, they commit suicide. 45%. And we don't know why, because obviously, unless there's like a diary kept or something, but I can only assume that it's because they just think they're so marred and so messed up. I don't know if they have regret, but maybe they just think it's better if they were no longer alive and they die without proper repentance. They die without changing their mind. This is why it's so dangerous to allow this kind of behavior in our culture. There are very specific and serious consequences. Now, go back to Romans chapter 1, verse 28. <clears throat> Likewise, also, excuse me, uh, 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. A reprobate mind is one that has totally fallen away. Now, there's a lot of people, especially in the new IFB, that will say, well, this reprobate mind means God said, there's a certain point where you can sin so much where I'm not going to save you. But I want you to understand th- something here. Who is the first initiator in this passage? Man is the one who initiates a departure from God. He continues, he continues till he gets to the point where he's using his body in the way that is unseemly. Man with man, woman with woman. Then God says, I'm going to give you over to your desires. That is a God that out of his sovereignty still gives man the freedom to choose. They can, the homosexual can continue to choose their sin but the risk they run is that they deceive themselves so thoroughly that they'll never change their mind and trust on Christ. And I, don't, I have done enough research, and I think you have seen enough in the culture, where that is the exact definition of the pride movement. Unrelenting will not change. They will destroy bakeries. They will destroy businesses. The whole movement will do whatever it takes so that you are getting in line if you get out of line this is why the apology culture I'm so against it if you say something that's biblical and true you shouldn't have to apologize for it I cringe when people bow down to that but you know what even when they bow down they're never fully restored because the movement wants it's all-consuming it's all-consuming and we are rapidly approaching What Roman culture looked like before its fall. We think of gymnasiums today as somewhere you can play sports. You look up what a gymnasium was in Roman time. A lot of homosexual behavior. A lot of it. Under the guise of sports and recreation and uh, relaxation. How did it get there? Because man decided the further that they would get away from God, the more that they worshiped themselves. Even the idea of being with each other in a sinful way. So I think we've looked sufficiently at this passage here, which is the one that I believe is the easiest to defend why homosexuality is incorrect. But let's look at the other two here, and this won't take much time. But first Corinthians chapter six and verse nine. First Corinthians chapter six and verse nine. We're going to look at a Greek word here, malakos. I can say that one. The other one, I, I just cannot pronounce. I've even had my Bible software repeat it to me, and I just I can't get a hold of it. <laughs> but this is the one that's used only a few times in the New Testament, and it's in this passage and then in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. But he says here in verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Now Paul is talking to believers in the port city of Corinth where there was likely homosexual behavior happening. Because it's a port city, it's well-to-do. No doubt there are male and female prostitutes. You, you have to understand, folks, that th- this was just the world at that time. Right? You know, I, I think a lot of the prostitution that's taking place today is on the internet. It's sold on the internet. And sadly, a lot of it is free. And no one's doing anything about it. But it's still offering something uh, to people for sexual gratification. And in this time, you would go and hire somebody. You would find a place... Likely a gym, depending on where you were at, to go and do these things, even in pagan temple uh, rituals. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, so pornia there, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate. Now this is that word, malakos, and it's only used one other time to mean a soft man, someone who is feminine in nature. This would be the one, and again, this gets detailed, but this would be the passive act of homosexuality. The person's body that is being used to represent a woman. That's what this word means. And the only other time it's used out of the three times that it's used in the New Testament, it's used by Jesus to describe soft raiment, clothing. Okay, and that is the definition of the word soft of things, clothes, or. Persons, soft, a, a special, uh, effeminate, men and boys who allow themselves to be misused homosexually. So there's, there's two active parties here. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about the men that actively participate in the use of another man inappropriately, and the person who allows that behavior to happen is described as effeminate here. Why? Why? Some people would say this is a slight, this is an offensive term. I'm not going to get graphic, but that's exactly what's trying to be emulated. They're trying to be the feminine party in this behavior. This is why it's, a, this is why it's so important. It is a departure from what God has set up. If you have a man and a woman and they're married, you don't have to do all this other stuff to simulate real sex. You're all, you guys are all set up and ready to go. You have all the working parts that need to make that happen. It's how God designed it. But in the homosexual behavior, you need someone to act on another part. That's all I'm going to say. I don't like discussing it, to be honest with you. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. So what the argument will say here is, well, see, he's talking about just, you know, all different types of sin Not just homosexuality. That doesn't answer the question. Homosexuality is listed twice in this list. Look at it again. Nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That includes the passive and the active role of homosexuality. And I want you to see this because this is a great reminder. Verse 11, and such were some of you. You know what that means? There are people that Paul led to Christ who were probably male prostitutes. They heard the gospel. They got saved. And they started walking with the Lord, but then they got caught up in their culture again. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's for sure, but he has it in the list. And the Bible has led him to say, the Holy Spirit, as he was writing this down, and such were some of you. But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And then they'll say, "Well, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient." Oh, so it's not—it's homosexual abuse, but homosexual behavior is okay? No, homosexual behavior is wrong. There's there's something that I want to read from this commentary here that I think is important. And you know, you you have heard about this, and time and time again, especially because. It's just in our culture, but it doesn't make it correct. We have to be careful that we don't change just because of what the culture says. While I'm looking this up, look in First Timothy chapter 1. This will be the last use of that word Malakos. First Timothy chapter 1. And we're going to look in verse 10. All right, this is what I want to read to you here. Uh, Many pro homosexual theologians say that homosexual love is not mentioned or condemned in Scripture. They are exactly right. Homosexual love is nowhere mentioned in Scripture because the Bible refers to it only as lust and degrading passions. If there was, if God honored homosexual behavior, then he would not have always called it as something that was against the natural design. This is what I hear the most, and I used to struggle with this. Why are you against two people who love each other? And this is, this is where you have to speak the truth, and you know you will offend somebody. But what they call love, God calls lust. And that, just because they care for one another and show good, kind things about one another, it is still lust in God's eyes. And the reason why that's hard for us to say to people is because they, they give the image, they're not hurting anybody, but the Bible says they're hurting themselves. Every day that they continue on in this mindset about their behavior, the Bible says they're giving themselves over to a reprobate mind. Their likelihood of trusting Christ diminishes. When I was doing Friday Night Soul Winning, I remember talking to a guy who was gay, and the first thing he said to me was, well, your God hates me. Now, if I was totally against that person from the get-go and didn't have any desire to win them to Christ, I wouldn't share with them how God loves them even while they're in their sin. Because I would just say, yeah, you're right, I guess. <laughs> but I know that God loves them even though they're in that sin. And he sent Jesus to die for them. I led that guy to Christ. And I remember we talked afterwards and he's saying, you know, no one's ever just approached me to tell me what God has done for me. Everybody wants to tell me how I have to change. Now the reality is, if he wants to be blessed by God, he can't be doing that. And, and an, early, an early death is likely for the believers who continue in sin. Any kind of sin. This is why those warnings, especially in the study that we've been doing on Sunday nights about the believer beware, bitterness, not growing properly, uh, spiritual lacks, all that stuff, can become so serious. Scripture never approves, and this is back from this commentary here, Scripture never approves any form of sexual love within a homosexual relationship. uh, relationship. The polarity that brings people together was created to function only between men and women. That's the very design of the body is proof of that. Each homosexual prohibition in and of itself is the abuse. It's not just the abuse of sex, it's the abuse of sex and how the body is supposed to function in it. But the other use of this word here is in verse 10 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. Uh, We'll start in verse 8 just for context. But we know that the law is good if any man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. That doesn't mean, mean for a saved man. That means for any man that's born righteous, and none of us are. But for the lawless and disobedient, that's everybody. For the ungodly and for the sinners. For unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind. That's the word malakos there that is translated in that way. For men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. So very clearly, Paul is saying, out of all this list, Homosexuality is against. Excuse me. In, included in all this list of things, homosexual behavior is condemned as against sound teaching. That's what doctrine means. Then it's not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament, except maybe in Galatians. There's some things there. There's a there's a debate on lasciviousness and what that means. Of course, lasciviousness, the consuming, uh, the all consuming desire for sexual gratification that could be shown in a homosexual way but these are the three places in which we can clearly see it and many people i have seen people on social media and it it just i never get over it what they say but they say things like jesus never talked about it so it was okay so it's okay that's you have to recognize something first of all paul spent time with jesus in the desert came back and wrote what he was supposed to write. When you read the New Testament, you're reading the Word, capital W Word. We're reading Christ. We're reading Jesus here. There's nothing in here that that when we get to heaven, Jesus is going to go, yeah, I don't know about that. I wasn't in line with that one. He's in agreement with all this. And second of all, Jesus did talk about the proper form of sex. One man, one woman in marriage. He said that when they asked him, can anybody just divorce their wife for any cause? He says, don't you remember how God made them male and female? They're supposed to leave father and mother and cleave to one another. I now see them as one. He, had, he said nothing there. If it was okay, there would have been something said about or man and man and woman and woman. And then you know the closing thing, you can, you can close your Bibles. I want you to see that and understand where those are, especially the discussion we had on Romans 1. But the, the, the closing thing I want you to understand here is that the worship in any kind of sex outside of marriage is the sex itself. This is the sad reality of many teenagers that get caught up in premarital sex. The men learn how to abuse women. It's totally true. There's this guy out there, his name is Andrew Tate. They call him the top G. This guy is just getting all all the credit. I mean, people that, that even on the conservative side, they're like, oh, this guy's good, this guy's good, and they'll give him an hour-long podcast and all this stuff. The guy's a fool. He's too smart for his own good. But he's an abuser of women. And I'm not saying for the charges they're bringing him up in Romania. I don't even know if those are true or not. But he promotes having sex with whoever you want. That's a power move for men, he says. And that's what women are looking for. But then he says, a man should be looking for a good virgin girl. Well, hang on. Every girl that you have sex with, you're going against what you say men should look for. But people don't see it. They're just like, yeah, man. Ooh, good. And people just go along with it. They go along with it. And this guy's got a platform to speak on good things. He says, I'm going to be a Muslim because that's the religion of power. Because when people hear of Islam, they have fear. I'm telling you what, there's going to come a day where everyone's going to confess the name of Jesus Christ. That's power. That's rulership. But the culture is telling a different message. It's telling a total different message. And you have to make sure... That you are tuned to what the Scripture teaches. That as you hear these arguments, which the reason why I covered this tonight is because it's the weaker part of the argument. A lot of this pro-LGBTQ stuff, they try to you know pitch their tent in the Old Testament because they can do some wordplay there. That's why I spent time on that this morning because that's where most of the argument lies. This stuff that we look at here, you know what they look at when they see Paul in Romans 1 that's not relevant for today. We need to put it away. Or it should have never been written. Because they build off of the argument that they made in the Old Testament. They say things like, well, Paul didn't know. He did. Paul knew all about this kind of behavior. So I hope that's been educational for you. If you would like to get a copy of those articles that I have, I'd be more than happy to give them to you. There's a little bit of workspace gospel at the end of the first article, so just, you know, throw that out. Uh, But the rest of what he wrote, I think, was really good and gave you a lot of information. Now, the idea here is not for you to go and, uh, you know, speak people into glazed eyes where they're like, oh, what? Um, You got to try and win people to the truth. Anybody that you come in contact with, and I know all of you here tonight, I know it's a small crowd, but I know all of you personally, anybody that we come into contact with, we should focus on the fact that their sin is paid. Let God deal with them after they've trusted Christ. He will. He will deal with them. But if we're trying to change people to get them into a proper position to be saved, you're never going to do that. You're never going to do that. The Bible says that we have to put our trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone for salvation. It has nothing to do with getting ready to do that. Right? We don't have to be less of a sinner to do that. If this hand represents you and me, I let my wallet represent sin. I put this on top of my hand because the Bible says, for all is sin and come short of the glory of God. God loves us, but he hates our sin because it separates us from him. In order to get to heaven, we have to be absolutely perfect without any sin and we all fall short. The wages of sin is death forever in a place called hell. People have went there today, folks, because they died without trusting in Christ. That should motivate us to be sharing the gospel. There's no amount of good works that could ever save us because we're not saved. Sin is not paid by good works. Somebody has to die. This hand represents God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. He took that sin on himself, died the death that we should have died, was buried and rose again three days later. And all of those who simply put their trust in Jesus Christ, that sin is paid for, And an exchange is made. They receive the free gift of everlasting life. And that's why the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. If you believe, you can know that you have it right now. The sin is paid for. Now the struggle we have, we have this new nature. Our old nature is still present. And we've got to learn how to win the victory over sin every day. And we learn to walk with the Lord, fulfill the desires of the Spirit, and not the lusts of the flesh. And that's an ongoing progress, our ongoing journey of our progressive sanctification. But we don't have to get sanctified before we can get saved. You just got to put your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had together. I, I pray, Lord, that we can just continue to abound and grow in knowledge, and that we would be sensitive to the fact that regardless of what sin people have, they need you and that we would be about getting them to the knowledge of salvation as a free gift. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.